All right, last week we started a short sermon series uh, called Back to the Basics, and I wanted us to look up front about uh, these, these questions and these topics, um, because how we answer these questions is going to determine uh, who we become as a church, where we go, what we do, and all of that. Last week we talked about what is a pastor, uh, and you can go back and listen to that. This week we're going to talk and ask the question, what is the Bible? Glenn, I'm not preaching Genesis to Revelations. I've done that before. Uh, not going to do that again. Today we're going to talk about what is the Bible. And to be honest, this probably should have been the first sermon last week. Uh, I assumed a lot of knowledge and a lot of belief in the room, but uh, I believe we have similar beliefs. But I want to take a step back and talk about this today. How do we know anything about God? How do we know and understand anything about God? How do we really know what is true? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? And what is our ultimate authority? Is it me? Is it you? Is it something else? That's what I want to talk about today. There are many today that say that truth is just based on your personal experience, um, what you've gone through. There's really no absolute truth, just personal truth. It's my truth, not the truth. Uh, many believe that truth is just subjective. Um, even some within Christian or religious circles claim that there are some truths that are higher and more authoritative than Scripture, right? For Catholics, it's the Pope. Whatever he says is, is equally and more authoritative than God's Word. In cults, the highest authority is the cult leader and his personality and his words. In theologically liberal churches, the highest authority is personal experience or feelings. That's what's most true and most important. In some churches, the highest authority is the most recent word that they've received from God that goes beyond this. And so as we talk about the Bible today, what I want to be clear about, that for us as a church, the highest authority is God's word. This is what defines truth. This is what defines what is good. This is what defines what is best for us is God's word. It's not cultural moments or cultural phenomenon that define what is true or good or best. It's not our feelings that define what is true or best or good for us. It's not a person, it's not a leader, it's not me that defines what is true or good or best for us. The, the Bible defines that. That is a fundamental belief that we have as a church. And we don't get to redact it. We don't get to pick the parts we like and get rid of the other ones that are difficult or confusing. No, we believe the whole thing. And we believe that it is authoritative and it is true. And so today what I want to do is talk about first, why do we have any reason to believe that this is true? Because I believe we do, and I think you do as well. We have good reason to believe that this is true. So we're going to talk about some of the reasons we have to believe that. We're going to talk about what we believe about the Bible, and then talk a little bit about how we should read it. All right? So let's talk first about reasons we have to believe the Bible. The Bible is a, a, a book that's made up of 66 other books or letters, and it's organized in lots of different ways, but there's an Old Testament, 
And there's a New Testament, an Old Covenant, that deals with God and how he dealt with the people of Israel. It's about two-thirds of it. And then there's a New Testament, everything from the birth of Jesus on to the church. And it's made up of all kinds of different literature. It's got poetry, it's got writings, it's got narrative, it's got letters, it's got personal letters, it's got corporate letters. There's a lot in it. Um, it's written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and some in Aramaic. Anybody read Aramaic this morning? Hal, Jackson, okay. All right, I thought so, I thought so. Um, but the Bible tells one story. It's one coherent story about God's love for humanity and his desire to redeem them back to himself. The whole story is, the whole book is one coherent, complete story. It all fits together. So what reason do we have to believe that it is true? The first reason we have is because the Bible that we have today is accurate to the originals. There are many people today that throw this around. Uh, you can't trust the Bible. It's, it's, it's been altered. It's been corrupted. It's been changed through the years. Churches and popes and different people have, have adjusted it to make it say what they want. There are many people that throw that out there with zero evidence. But the question for us today first is to ask, is the Bible, is what we have, the Greek and Hebrew scriptures, accurate to the originals. And what they're trying to do when they ask that question is it gets us to question parts of it, to go, ah, that's not a good ethic when it comes to sexuality, or maybe parts of it are true, you can believe, but parts of it aren't. There, there's this doubt that's trying to sneak in. And so we gotta ask the question, let's look at the evidence this morning. Is the Bible that we have today accurate to what was originally written, okay? And to do that, we have to compare it to some other ancient literature. So some of you went, oh, yeah, I love ancient literature. Some of you went, whoa. Let's look at three pieces of ancient literature. There's a famous Roman author named Homer. And Homer wrote uh, a work called the Iliad. I think I had to read it at some point in my education. And Homer wrote the Iliad in 800 B.C., the oldest copy that we have of it is from 400 BC. So he wrote it in 800. We don't have a copy until 400. There's a 400 year gap. We're not sure what happens in there, but we have about 643 ancient copies. Plato, a uh, famous Roman Greek philosopher, I could be wrong, I don't know. He wrote a work called The Republic in 400 BC. The first and oldest copy that we have is from 900 AD. That's 1,300 years between the original writing and the oldest copy that we have, and we only have seven ancient copies of it. Julius Caesar, you've probably heard of him. He wrote, it's not Little Caesar's Pizza, different guy. This is Julius. He wrote a book called The Gaelic Wars, a history, and he wrote this about 100 B.C. The first copy we have is from 980. There's 1,000 years of missing copies. And there's only 10 ancient ones that remain. Now, why do I tell you this? Because we're not learning about the Iliad or the Republic or the Gaelic Wars this morning. We're learning about the New Testament. We're learning about the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. If we compare it to those. The New Testament is written from 50 to about 100 AD. 
And the oldest copy that we have is from 125 AD. I've seen it with my own eyes in Manchester, England, in the John Rollins Library. Not only that, we have 24,000 ancient copies on papyrus, on animal skin, on walls of caves. We have an immense amount of copies from 125 and on. And not only that, the copies have a 99.5 accuracy, meaning that the copy that's written in Egypt is 99.5 accurate compared with the copy that was transmitted in Turkey and the one that was transmitted in Israel. Like, they match. There are errors. There are copy errors. And don't let that make you go, ooh, the Bible's not true. No, it's misspellings or they left out a word when they were copying it. But because we have 24,000 of them, we can go, oh, that's wrong. It clearly says this. Now, this morning, the truth is this. No one is questioning, did Homer really write the Iliad? Does anybody have that question this morning? No. Is anybody going, Gaelic Wars, that doesn't seem to be what Julius Caesar really wrote. I question whether he intended to write that word. No. We have a 25-year gap compared to 1,300 years. Who knows what happened in 1,300 years? We have a, such a small gap, and it's accurate beyond any other work of ancient literature. We have very, very good reason first to believe that the Bible that we have today is accurate, okay? That doesn't prove that it's true. It just means that what we have is what they actually wrote. Now, whether they wrote something that was wild and crazy is another question, but we have very good reason. You have very good reason to believe when someone says, oh, they've altered it, oh, they've changed it. No, no, that's the enemy trying to sow seeds of doubt. The Bible we have today is accurate to what was originally written. The second reason we have to believe the Bible is the Bible is a reliable historical account. It is a reliable historical account. And what that means is that reliable historical account, it means that it recorded actual facts, actual people, actual experiences that really happened. This is not propaganda. This is not outlandish myth. This is not recorded as, you know, wild fantasy. No, this is a reliable historical account. And we have good reason to believe that for two reasons, because of other ancient literature and archaeology. So let's look at first other historical accounts. Some people have said, oh, Jesus wasn't a real historical character, or the Hittites weren't really a people, or King David wasn't really a king, it was just a myth. But the truth is this, there is more written about in ancient literature about Jesus than almost uh, that matches the Bible. He is an authentic historical figure. This is a Roman author, historian named Tacitus, and thankfully somebody translated this from the Greek because I wasn't going to be able to do that. Roman writer and historian, he's writing this about 116 AD, and he's talking about Nero, the emperor of Rome. He says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abomination called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, that's Jesus Christ, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. 
So this is one Roman historian who is not sympathetic to Christianity. He's not trying to persuade the masses and manipulate them in any way. He's just writing what happened under Pontius Pilate that Jesus Christ was crucified. Pliny the Younger, another guy, he's a uh, Roman author and he was an administrator in some of his letters that we have. He writes this in 112 AD about the Christian church. He says, they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and bind themselves by oath to, and he goes on to talk about how they lived as a church. Pliny the Younger, non-sympathetic to Christianity, not a Christian, writing about the early church, that they, they gathered together, that they worshiped Christ as a God, that they viewed him as deity, right? These are external to the Bible. And maybe one of the most famous is a guy named Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish priest and historian. And uh, in his work in 94 AD, he says this. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. And he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, and he goes on and on about Jesus. Pliny, I'm sorry, Josephus, a Jewish historian, anti-Christian, writing about the facts, says that Jesus was a wise teacher, that he was crucified. And he goes on and he talks about some about the resurrection, that some view him as have, having risen from the dead, and some viewed him as maybe the Messiah. We have good reason to believe that what the Bible wrote, what was written down, is accurate history. This is not myth. This is not uh, fantasy. This is history, truth, actual, reliable, historical events. We also have reason to believe because of archaeology. This is a massive field that I did not delve into a whole bunch this week because it's a lot, but you're welcome to go research it. There are so many archaeological facts and discoveries that verify the accounts of the Bible. Maybe more than that, there are not archaeological finds that disprove the Bible. One of these was the Dead Sea Scrolls you may be familiar with in 1947. At that time, we didn't have old copies of the Old Testament. They were way late. But they found old copies of the, the Old Testament from about the time of Malachi's writing in 400 B.C. And it proved that, that it was accurate, that what the Old Testament we have today is the same thing that was back then, right? And this, we don't have time to look at all of the inscriptions and the stones and the scrolls and burial sites and Moabite kings. And you, you, this is a wormhole. You can go deep down into this. But the evidence is out there that corroborate and confirm that what the Bible reports is accurate, is history. It's not myth. It's not persuasion. It's not propaganda. And so I'm here to tell you first, we have good reason to believe that the Bible is accurate, that this is what they actually wrote down, and that it's reliable, that, that what they wrote down was the truth. We have good reason to believe this. The Bible is the most attested and accurate ancient document that exists. Do not let anyone dissuade you with that. 
And so what is it that we believe about the Bible? What is it that we believe about the Bible? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14. First, we believe this, that the Bible is God-breathed through human authors. It's God-breathed through human authors. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, the Bible, the scriptures. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We believe 2 Timothy 3.16 that says that, that all scripture is God-breathed. Yours may say inspired by God. It's theonuptos, which is God-breathed, literally. That God breathed it out, and he used human authors to do, do so. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, this isn't some made-up myth. I saw this with my own eyes. And then skip down to verse 20. He says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 of chapter 2. But false prophets also among, arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift Destruction. And so what we believe about Scripture, about the Bible, is that it is God-breathed. God, God is speaking. He is the one who is speaking. He is the author. It's, yes, there's humans that wrote this. There's Paul and John and all these men. But, but God is the origin. God is the author. He used their words. He used their thoughts. He used their experiences and their personalities. Because if you read Paul, it's going to sound different than reading John. But he used all of that, but ultimately we believe that it is God who authors Scripture, which makes it true. And it's not, like it says in Second Peter, it's not just that they, they wanted to write this about Jesus and convince the masses of something, right? Or to persuade people. He says, no, they were eyewitnesses, and they did it as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we believe that God, the Bible is God-breathed through human authors. We also believe this, that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. The Bible is inerrant and infallible. 
John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We believe the Bible is true. This seems so basic, but it's so important. If we don't believe that the Bible is true, then what are we doing here? This is a really poor hobby. We have like the largest lake in the state of Texas right down the road. This is a bad hobby if this is not true. But we're in here. Why? Because we believe that the Bible is true. That's what inerrant means. It means without error or fault. It's without error or fault. Some people make a big deal that the Bible has mistakes and there's copy errors and, and it speaks about scientific things wrongly. And, you know, if you read the resurrection account, there's different perspectives and people say different things. But that's not what inerrancy talks about. Inerrancy believes that the Bible is true and it's reporting the facts. We believe the Bible does not contradict itself. Because if God really is the author and he is true, and he is consistent, and he is perfect, then he would not author something that is false. He would not lead us astray. We also believe that the Bible is infallible. And infallible means incapable of error, but what it really insinuates is trustworthy or reliable. Like, you have people in your life that when they tell you they're going to show up and help you move, they're actually going to show up and help you move. Their word is infallible. And you have people in your life that when they say, yeah, I'll be there, you know they're not really going to show up. <laughs> we believe the Bible is infallible. It is true. When it reports something to us, it is telling the truth, and we can rely on it. This is a small side note, but I think it's important. The verse numbers, the chapter numbers, they're not God-inspired. They weren't added until about 1500 because they started with the printing press and they're trying to organize it and all that. So don't go reading into the numbers because this number says this and this plus this equals that and that's my birthday and so God's telling me I need to change jobs. Don't, don't, just don't. God did not inspire the verse numbers. He inspired the words. Okay, just had to say that. We believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible. We also believe the Bible is translated into modern languages. So stick with me for a little bit. For about 1,400 years, from the writing of the New Testament in 100 to about 1,500 when the printing press comes around, every copy of the Bible was handwritten. There were no photocopies. There were no laser printers. There was no digital app that you could search and find all the instances of whatever word. Every copy was painstakingly hand-copied. By scribes, we do not possess the original writings, the paper that John used to write the Gospel of John. We don't have it. And don't let that go, oh, we don't know what he really wrote. We have so much evidence in the translations. The originals, remember, were written in Greek and Hebrew and some in Aramaic. And so it wasn't until about 382 A.D., that translations happened into other languages. Now, Greek and Hebrew were dominant languages for a long time. And then what happens, eventually people don't speak Greek and Hebrew anymore, they speak Latin. And so Jerome uh, translates the Bible into Latin so that people could understand it. They were being read scriptures that they couldn't understand. I mean, what if I just whipped out and started reading the Spanish Bible this morning? 
Moy would be so thrilled. But that would be about it. The rest of you would sit and just listen. It is a good thing to have the Bible in our language. It wasn't until about the 1500s that the first English translations were done. It started with the work of a guy named William Tyndale. Go look him up. We don't have time to tell his story. William Tyndale died because he translated the Bible into English. That's how much he believed in God's word. That's how much he wanted people to understand it. Eventually, other English translations were done, like the King James, the Geneva Bible. But we believe that all Bible is translated from modern. There is no inspired English version. There is not. We do not believe that, that certain ones are, are the only uh, translation that should ever be read. Every copy we have is a translation of the originals. And this is a good thing. We should read the Bible in language that we can understand. Whether you speak King James or NLT or NIV, it's a good thing to understand the Bible in your own words. We have a ton of translations, and this gets asked a lot. Which one's really the Bible? Because you're reading the ESV, and Charity read the NLT a while ago, and now we've got NIV, and aren't these just evidence that, you know, Everybody's corrupting it, making it say what they want. No, not at all. There are different approaches to translating. Like in Spanish, adjectives come after, right? Boy, yes. He's like, I don't know. I just speak it. Okay. It's very difficult to translate word for word for word. But some try to do that from Greek, like the NASB and the ESV and even the KJV. It's very literal. And sometimes... It's hard to understand in English. And then there are some that take the more thought-for-thought approach, like the NLT or the NIV or the CSB. And they're trying to say, what is it saying? Let me say that in modern English. They're not as precise, but they're understandable. They're written on a grade level that's maybe easier to understand. And then there are other non, they're not translations, they're a paraphrase, like something like the message. And the message is very feels good to read, right? But it is not a translation of the Bible. It is Eugene Peterson's take on the Bible. And there's value in reading it, but I would not make any major life decisions based on what Eugene Peterson has to say. I would with God's word, but not on Eugene Peterson. And so which one is right? Which one is good? Well, I'm here to tell you, and you can go figure this out for yourself, that any of these translations are good. They're basing it off the originals. They're, they're, they're being faithful to the text. Pick one. Pick one that you can understand. Pick a couple and compare them. Don't be afraid that there's multiple translations because what matters is really how we read it, how we read it. So let's talk about this. How should we read it? How should we read the Bible? Well, first, we should read the Bible. It seems a little simple, but it is true. Psalm 1 1. Psalm 1 1 says that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. 
and its leaf does not wither. We should read the Bible. We need to meditate on it. We need to soak it up like a tree does the uh, the water from the stream. We need God's word. If we really believe it's accurate and it's reliable and it's true, why would we not read it? Why would we not soak it up? He says that God's word is our source of life. And so we should be reading the Bible. Acts 17, 11, it says, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. You need to read the Bible because what if I say something wrong? What if I try to convince you that we need to go left when we actually, God's word says we need to go right? No, you need to know God's word. We should be reading the Bible. Culture is going to tell us all sorts of things. This is good. This is true. This is best. And if you don't read God's word, you won't know what is good and what is right and what is best. We should be reading the Bible. Second, we should read the Bible in community. We should read the Bible in community. And by that, I mean with others. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. He tells him that there should be public reading of Scripture. That means with others, doing it together. He should be committed to this, devoted to this. He's not just talking about a preacher preaching. He's talking about reading it together. Right? We need each other to read the Bible. I mean, I don't know how many of you have ever thought, that is daunting. I don't understand this. This is complicated. What does this mean? We have questions. We don't always understand it. So we need each other. We need to read it with people that are older and wiser than us so that they can help us understand. We need to read it with people that are different than us so we can see how they understand it. We need each other. And we need to help keep each other from believing wrong things. It's accountability. It's correction. We don't just go home and read it and develop our own little cult because we we misunderstood Scripture. No, we should read the Bible together in community. Third, we should read the Bible in context. We should read the Bible in context. Nehemiah 8, one of my favorite passages, and, and Cody preached this a few weeks ago. We should read the Bible in context. In Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the temple, and they've, they've really lost all sense of God. And they find a copy of the Bible or the, the Old Testament scriptures, the law. And so they bring it out. They get all the people together, and they say, hey, we're going to read it. And here's what it says. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. They, they, they read it clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood. What is important is that we understand the Bible. It is not just something that soothes our souls. If, you know, if you've known Muslims, reading the Quran for them is more of like a musical experience. It's just like soothing background music. It just sounds beautiful, and they love how it sounds, even if they don't understand what it means. That's not how we read the Bible. We read it to understand it. It's meant to be taught and understood clearly. We're supposed to give the sense, not just leave it complex and go, well, I don't know. 
No, context is important. So we should read the Bible in context. Context is what's around it. And so we can't just go to a verse and cherry pick it and go, well, this says da-da-da-da-da, so that means da-da-da-da-da. We don't cherry pick it out of context. We read it as a whole. We read because we believe the Bible is one message. And so we believe that it doesn't contradict. Scripture interprets Scripture. We read it in context. And we're trying to draw out what it means. We're not reading our experiences and our meaning, what we want it to say, into it. We're drawing out the meaning. That's what it means to read it in context. Many people have taken Scripture and used it to twist and hurt people and manipulate or try, try to use Scripture to defend themselves or justify sin or all sorts of things. They twist it. They're, they're, they're taking it and they're twisting it. No, this is not what God intends. We're to read it in context. And then lastly, we should read it in prayer. We should read the Bible in prayer. John 14, 26. John 14, 26. Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so, yes, we should read it by ourselves so we can understand it. We should read it with others so we can understand it, and we should read it in context. But ultimately, we need to read it in prayer because we need the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual thing. This is not just an earthly soak up the facts about the Bible. No, no, no. We need to read it in prayer. God, help me understand. God, give me wisdom. God, show me the way. Right? We read it in prayer, dependent on the Holy Spirit who wants to lead us into truth. The Holy Spirit's not going to lead us into other things. He's not going to speak in in ways that are contrary to Scripture. No, he's there to point us to it and tell us the truth. That's how we should read the Bible. Why does this matter? Why am I railing about Greek manuscripts and Pliny the Younger and all that? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Look at Isaiah 55 got a lot of reasons, but I don't have time. Isaiah 55, look at verse 9 through 11. It says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. This is my fundamental belief that it's God's word that builds God's church. God's word will not return void. My wisdom probably will. My creativity probably will, but God's word. And what we soak up as a church is what we become. And what we soak up is what we do and where we go and how we love. Like what we need more of is God's word, and that's a fundamental belief of mine and our church, that we need to lean on this as authoritative. This is what is true, this is what is good, and this is what is best. That's why it matters. We're going to close today. Let me pray for us. Uh, The band's going to come forward. Um, Hearing God's word should always 
result in two things. We talked about it last week. One, worship, and two, obedience. We're meant to hear God's word and praise God for it. And we're meant to hear God's word and do it. We don't just come, talk a bunch, and then leave and leave unchanged. No, we're meant to do God's word. And so we're going to sing a song of worship. It's a great time to praise God for his word. Praise God for the truth. Praise God that we know. And then we're going to leave, and we're going to go and do the word. We're going to love our families. We're going to love our neighbors. We're going to share the gospel. We're going to live it out. That's what we do. We hear it, and we do it. If you want to talk, man, I can talk during the song. We can talk after. We can talk whatever. I would love to share more with you about church membership, about being saved, any of that. But join me in prayer this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. God, thank you that we're not left in the dark. God, thank you that you have revealed that to us, what is true, what is best, and what is good. I pray that we would rely on it. We would depend on it. We would know it. We would meditate on it. We would soak it up. We would dwell in it. God, and I pray that you would give us community and context to help us understand it, God. May your Holy Spirit teach us what it means and, and convict us where we're wrong and correct us when we need correcting through your word. God, I pray that we would live this out and that our community would know what is true and what is good and what is best because, because your word is going out. You promise that it will not return void. And so we pray that as we go out with your word, God, that it would produce fruit. We love you, God. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.